My name is Tony Viola. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I come from a big Italian family, and I had a very, very happy childhood. Lots of Italian relatives, Sunday dinners with, uh, with the family, and just a great uh, family situation. I have one younger brother, Chris, and my uh, uh, mom and dad, Tony and Joanne, were wonderful parents. I consider myself very fortunate. Uh, I was very lucky to go to college in Washington, D.C., to Georgetown, and I wanted to come back to Cleveland and contribute towards our city, create jobs, and do good things in our community. So I came back here and went to MBA school at night at Case and started a little business. And the goal was to change Cleveland, to create opportunities, to contribute to our city. You know, when I grew up, this was called the Rust Belt, and the factories were closing. And so Cleveland, that had been this great boom town uh, where people came to Cleveland, including my family and people from all over the world, to get jobs and to be successful, really fell on hard times. So a lot of people wanted to come back if you went to college somewhere and you wanted to contribute to the community. So that's I ended up back here hoping to do some good uh, and have some fun and make some money, too, in our in our city. Now, about what... what- Time frame was this when when you started your real estate business? Uh, so it was in the early '90s. Uh, my high school sweetheart, uh, Katrina Rose, was a photographer, and she was very a very creative person, and she loved taking pictures of old houses in Cleveland. And whenever it would rain, she'd say, "Get ready, we're going to go." And we and I'd say, "Why do we have to go?" Because when when it stops raining, the city it looks amazing, and the pavement is like glass, and you get the coolest pictures you can ever imagine. So we get let's go and so she was always the social person and I was more of the introvert more of the shy person sort of nerdy Um, and she was always the life of the party and she was very creative so she loved these old houses and one day we were going she always knew the cool new restaurants we were going to a restaurant and she's like you know we should just buy some of these houses they're so cheap and they're so awesome and we could fix them up and it'd be fun and we could just hire people and I said well sure but there's two problems you know, we don't have any money and we don't know what we're doing. You know, I don't know how to do construction. And she's like, well, we could just figure it out. It would work. And so we literally just bought a house uh, and started fixing it up and, and, and sold it and made some money. And we thought, oh, well, maybe this, maybe we could do this. And so she always said, look, we can always get mediocre jobs. I promise you, Tony, I guarantee you, they're always going to be low wage jobs. Let's try to do a real estate. You know, let's just try see what happens. And if it doesn't work, we could always go back to that. So I said, you know what? You're right. We have nothing to lose. And so we started our real estate business. And so take us into about the time the troubles started. When, okay. So the financial crisis hits. Sure. What is, how is your business responding to that? And what, what do you think got you into trouble and let's lead into what the trouble was okay all right well the trouble i didn't really know why i got into it until a decade later but our investigative team unearthed how this all started um but before you talk about the financial crisis i think you got to talk about the real estate boom people were making money in real estate they were accumulating rental properties people that were renting saying why should we rent let's buy a two-family house we'll live in the downstairs we'll rent the upstairs instead of paying seven or eight or nine hundred dollars in rent we'll we'll make money and so the interest rates were low and the economy was good and people were making money. And these subprime lenders had came into the market and they figured out, you know, back in the day when someone loaned you money, they cared if you paid it back. 
And what happened was these new lenders were loaning money, and then they were selling off the loans on Wall Street, and they kind of didn't care if you didn't pay the loan back. So what happened was people that couldn't buy property before were all of a sudden eligible to buy five or 10 or 20 houses at once. And so there was a real estate boom. Now, our company was a was a smaller operation, kind of scrappy, uh, not a fancy corporate real estate office. So we tried to pay our sales associates the highest commission split in town. We tried to have good marketing systems to attract agents. So we were growing by going to the established realtors and seeing if they would consider joining our company and explaining that we had a good marketing system and a low cost structure. So when the economy started to turn, we thought we were going to do quite well through a downtime because we didn't have expensive corporate overhead. We didn't have fancy offices. We were doing real estate auctions. We were helping people that were having short sales to try to sell their house if they got underwater on the homes. So we were sort of built to prosper in challenging times. And, you know, we're in Cleveland, so this is not boom city USA. So keeping the cost reasonable is important. And I don't care how nice of a person you are, if your sales team could make more money by going to Keller Williams or Remax or Howard Hanna, they're going to go somewhere else. So we always ran the company to keep the salespeople happy, keep them engaged and, and give them leads and make sure that our shop was the best place for them to prosper. So we, the customers were our customers, but the sales team was also the customers. So we had this invigorated corporate staff, a lot of good marketing from our crew, Sarah Brewer, Abby Meyer, some of our stars, Annie Macklis, really did an amazing job of helping our sales team prosper and grow. So we thought that even though as we saw the market starting to turn, we thought we would survive and maybe even thrive because we just didn't have the corporate overhead. We had no debt, basically no bills. So we thought we'd be a, sur a survivor in challenging times. So that's where you were at in the boom Right. And as the bubble was growing. Right. Did you and were, did you have any inclination that like these weren't sustainably good times? Well, we were concerned by some of the shenanigans going on in the mortgage business. Uh, there was something called a parking lot loan where you would sign it in the in the title company. And by the time you got to your car in the parking lot, the interest rate went up. There were these crazy adjustable rate loans. And there were people that were complaining that said, hey, Tony, I bought this rental house. And the guy told me my payment was going to be 900. And it was 900 for three months. And now it's 1200. And I'm not making any money. And so we started being uh, becoming concerned because we had built a business by having the same clients over and over again and having happy customers. And when they were calling, complaining about these mortgages, we got very concerned about that. And we actually had our corporate attorney help us uh, navigate this. So we started putting restrictions on how many houses the customers could buy at once. And we started trying to make sure that the customers were getting fixed rate loans. But there was a lot of nonsense in the mortgage business. These banks were doing some bait and switch, telling your payment would be a certain thing. And then at the closing table, they give you a stack of papers and you're signing it and they swap out page 84 and your interest rate that they told you was seven is really nine. So there was challenges in the in the business. And there was so much money in the mortgage business that people were just coming into the business that didn't really have a background in the business itself. So you had a combination of sloppiness, a boom, unqualified borrowers. And remember, in business, there's sort of two emotions. There's fear and there's greed. You know, fear, like if the stock market goes down, people are like, well, let me just sell everything. I don't want to lose everything I have. 
that that's fear. I'm scared of losing what I have. But then there's, then there's greed. When times are good, there's greed. Well, you know, Brian's getting rich. You know, Tony's getting Tony owns all these. Why can't? What am I a schmuck? Why can't I own a rental house? And so you you get this like fear of missing out. And so then more and more people are coming into the business. And by the way. Real estate's the only industry where people think they could just jump in and make all this money. You know, I don't think I would be a really good dentist tomorrow, right? Or I don't think I'd be a really good third grade teacher or fireman or nurse. Yeah, okay? but you can really mess up someone's life if you're an unqualified dentist. How much could you really mess up someone's life by selling them a house when you don't know what you're doing? Oh, wait. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Actually, but you know, there were bad things that happened in some of these houses. Lead poisoning. Yeah. Houses that weren't properly renovated and there were safety issues. And so it's no joke to renovate a house and then if it's not done properly. So there is a little bit of a health and safety issue that you have to be aware of. And then if someone buys a house and they intend on making money and they don't and it goes into foreclosure, that screws up their credit. It may even prevent them from getting jobs. A lot of employers are pulling credit. So we certainly didn't want anyone not to make money in real estate. We had built a successful business by serving clients, but there was a lot of euphoria and there was a lot of people that were just, oh my God, I got to buy 10 houses right now. Uh, And that was in the market. And with these lenders promoting the loans, I mean, people would come to our office and say, hey, I just saw Danica Patrick on, you know, advertising a mortgage. You're more than just a number, you know, with Argent and New Century and Long Beach. All these lenders were offering these no money down programs. And so people said, hey, I want to get in on this. I want to make money in real estate. So we were concerned that the market was going crazy. And there was all these newcomers in the market, which was sort of a red flag when you have people that, you know, think that they can make all this money fast. You can make money in real estate over time. But it's not really a get rich quick uh, type thing where you buy a house and you're all of a sudden rich. I mean, you have to make cash flow and improve properties over time, especially in this area. Well, so. and that's that's a dis- there's a distinction too between someone who wants to buy houses and flip them, and like you're just a real estate agent. Like right now, we were licensed real estate agents, so we're realtors. I mean, that's what our company did. We managed property, we did construction services, we conducted auctions, which is another way of selling real estate. Um, but yeah, we were real estate agents, but we had a lot of bank-owned properties that we would list and sell. So a lot of investors would be interested in that. And they'd say, hey, I'm looking for inexpensive houses in a certain area. If you get them, let me know. And so it created a lot of activity. When you have the cheapest house, I don't pick a city. It doesn't matter. If you're the realtor with the cheapest listing, you're going to get a lot of phone calls. Even if the property is not great in great condition, you'll get inquiries that you then can say, well, okay, this one's maybe a little rough. And I understand you're not interested in this, but maybe I can find you another one. So the activity of the inexpensive houses drove our, our business and allowed us to grow and created leads for the sales team. So <clears throat> when did you finally uh, get um, sucked up into the, the 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 net of the mortgage task force and, and that's what we're leading towards right and um, right and we never in a million years would have thought that I would be accused of mortgage fraud because I was not in the mortgage business. We are a real estate company and so I was at a meeting uh, with, at a condo development that we represented and my and the, and my um, 
team in the office knew I was there because they had a sort of a weekly meeting and my phone was blowing up and they usually wouldn't call me in a meeting. So I'm like, what is going on? And I said, let me answer this. Something's up. And they, they called, they said, the police are here. I said, the police, oh my God. So I thought, God forbid something happened to one of our employees or someone got hurt or, you know, cause there's been incidents downtown or something. I said, oh, so I was like, that was what I thought. They said, no, they're taking our computers. You got to get down here. I said, what? You know, I, I said, are you guys kidding me? And so I raced downtown and I showed up and there was a SWAT team, guns, people, you know, yelling, where are the mortgage files? You know, the FBI, a guy named Jeff Kasuf, FBI agent Jeff Kasuf, he's yelling, where are the mortgage files? And I'm like, what company are you looking at for? We're, we don't have any mortgage files. He, you know, and they said, look, if you're going to be a smart ass, you're going to make this a lot harder. And these raids, this was a lot of, uh, cop testosterone, I guess. This is like their Super Bowl. There was a lot of excitement and they were very much on edge and they've got their guns and there's a SWAT team. And mortgage agents are, are a well known, dangerous crowd. Yeah, right. I mean, we're, <laughs> right. I mean, we're having coffee and blueberry muffins, you know, and we're being raided, you know. Now, if the government would have called, if the U.S. Attorney's Office or someone would have said, hey, we're conducting an investigation, I would have given them our files. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I would have said, okay. But they wanted the TV spectacle, live, breaking news, uh, covered. Showing that something's getting. Now, when was this exactly? This is late 2008. Okay. Nation's largest mortgage fraud case. I stole $46 million. Uh, I devised a scheme to trick J.P. Morgan into and Citibank into making these no-money-down mortgage loans. We are not a mortgage company. We have no mortgage files. So, I mean, there was just complete shock. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like, you just, I, I mean, one day we're like an exciting real estate company, you know, scrappy, growing. We got this nice office downtown now. We got this young, vibrant marketing system and all these great team members. And then the other day, we're, you know, one second later, we're criminals. Because once that stain is in the public arena that we're stealing money and we're criminals and we are responsible for the, the, the economic meltdown. I mean, the prosecutors, you know, Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres, I mean, they had press conferences. And they said, if your house went down in value, it's this Tony guy. This is the dude that caused these problems. He committed fraud. He duped all these banks into making these loans. These people were not qualified to buy properties. And here's this guy stealing, siphoning all this money off. He's getting rich. And, you know, you're, you're, you're losing your retirement. You're losing your job. You're losing your house. Getting rich. I lived in a $150,000 house in Cleveland Heights on Meadowbrook, and I drove a Mercury. So this idea that I'm rich. So I'm like, this is surreal. I mean... I had I was just completely shocked and just completely devastated. It would just be like getting hit on the head with a baseball bat 20 times. I couldn't believe it. My initial reaction was that everything is going to work out. This is just ridiculous. The indictment said that I owned family title and that I owned transcontinental lending. It's just not true. And I never told anybody to lie on their loan applications and I didn't own these businesses. So I thought, well, how how could I be charged with I mean, the government doesn't know what companies I own. And I, you know, when they had a media circus, I did respond. When journalists called and asked for comment, I'm not saying no comment. I'm innocent. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm going down there. I'm going to answer the questions. And the, the, there was a, a scrum, I guess you call it. It must have been about 20 reporters. Oh, incidentally, the um, uh, Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres, they let the media know about the raid before they showed up. Because Michelle Jarbeau, who's now at Cranes, she called and asked me for comment on the raid. And I was like, raid? What? 
So this thing was a media circus before it happened. Before it happened. Okay. So, and she know, hi, Michelle, you know what happened. And so the, the government locked themselves in. This is a very dangerous thing because they locked themselves into a false narrative and they were not willing ever to deviate from a false narrative that they created. They unleashed and uncorked this media circus. They had these press conferences, there's press releases, they're saying these things, and they are not willing to veer from what they said. No fact would ever get them to stop this case. But I didn't know that, I was naive. I thought that court was fair, and I thought that, well, this is factually incorrect. I just never owned these businesses. And when they raided uh, companies, they went and raided like eight or 10 companies, they raided these other places. And so I thought, well, we'll get the computers from these companies, we'll get their records, and we'll show I wasn't involved. And then later, the government, uh, Mark Bennett showed up in court one day and said, oh, we don't, we lost the computers that we seized in televised raids, okay, that the FBI had. You show them wheeling them out of the, we lost them. And so, the, so, so this is just the beginning of a whole series of, of, of serious misconduct by the U.S. attorney and by the prosecutors. They are unwilling, completely unwilling to admit error or even consider other evidence. You know, they wouldn't meet with me. Dan Caceres, I, I hired an attorney. I said, let's go down there and I, I've got to show my records. No, no, uh, you're a target, Tony. So we don't meet with targets of the investigation. That's what they said. So the government was destroying my business. Now, who wants to work for, for a guy who supposedly stole $46 million. You know, our company was destroyed by this over time. Not all at once. I mean, there's a shock, maybe it'll work out. But over time, this case drags on and on for several years. It was almost three years before the trial started. And our company is being slowly destroyed. And while this evidence is lost and they can't find evidence. By the way, the other thing that's fascinating about law enforcement, the more they could not find mortgage files in my company, the more they were convinced there must be mortgage files. We're not letting this slick criminal get away. I mean, not that they're idiots or anything or they're wrong. That apparently didn't enter. Donald Rumsfeld thinking the absence of evidence isn't evidence. It's proof. Well, aha, right. Aha. Well, he must be guilty. Well, the reason there's no evidence. The WMDs is because they they hid them real hard. Yeah. That's clearly what's going on. Right. They're there. We just, right. So the fact, so the absence of evidence of my guilt made them think, well, that's the tip off. Okay, this guy's a slick guy, and we're not letting this guy get away with it. So he's obviously hiding evidence, so we're going to take extraordinary measures ourselves. So in their mind, they convinced themselves that what they ended up doing with Dawn and some of the other things was justified because the lack of evidence meant that I was this really slick criminal. And it is ridiculous that they locked themselves into a false narrative. So these televised raids by law enforcement are really problematic because they do not ever want to admit they're wrong, ever, but particularly after press conferences and press releases. There was no way that they were going to willingly lose this case. And there was nothing, nothing that the U.S. attorney in Cleveland and uh, state uh, prosecutor Dan Gassett, there was nothing that was off the table in terms of winning, quote, winning this case, destroying evidence, hiding evidence, using perjured testimony, manufacturing documents, destroying computers. I mean, that just another day at the office because of this raid and press. And I, I don't even think they realized how popular, the, I mean, this was the peak of their career when they raided the company and they were solving the mortgage crisis and we're going to prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. The public was sick and tired of foreclosures and declining property values. And so, you know, every time there'd be a pretrial, you know, the journalists would run up to Dan and comment on the latest, you know, what's going on. And they, they reveled in it. 
I mean, Mark Bennett, I mean, they loved, who was a, a USA, assistant U.S. attorney, and, and Stephen Dettelback, the U.S. attorney. I mean, they loved it. They enjoyed the publicity. They reveled in it. They couldn't get enough of it. It was like a, a moth to a flame. And so this is very dangerous because we're violating the Constitution as we're trying to, quote, win a case that we said this guy owns mortgage and title companies. And I stole $46 million. By the way, my bond, right, you think, well, you got it. you're getting arraigned, right? was zero. They said, well, just sign here and come to court. I saw, how, how could there be no bond? I mean, if you get a DUI, there's a bond. No, no, you just you come to court uh, in six weeks. So, I mean, to me, the, the, the case just started off as uh, like this ridiculous, like I expected it, uh, the Keystone cops or Inspector Clouseau to show up at some point too. It was just so ridiculous that I stole $46 million. There's no effort to freeze any of my assets and just no bond, just come back to court in six weeks. So I thought, well, this will work out somehow. That's what I originally thought. And so as you were going through the trial, um, what was your reaction to as you learned what the case against you was? Well, the case essentially was, I mean, it's a fraud case. So you have to have a victim, right? So if I break into your house and steal money from you off your coffee table, you're the victim. You lost money. You're entitled to have it repaid and I should be prosecuted. So the victim was these banks. So I didn't believe that the banks were victims. They were devising these no money down loan products. So I thought the whole thing was just this faulty premise of I'm being blamed for what banks were doing. And at no time did we think there was anything wrong with what we were doing. I had a real estate lawyer. We had compliance people in our company. We had passed all of our audits by the Ohio uh, Division of Real Estate. So at no time did I ever think that we were doing anything wrong. Uh, and, and I didn't own these companies. So I, I, the whole thing was just hard to defend against. Um, our, our guess was to sh- basically try to show that the banks knew what was going on and they willingly made all these loans. They were promoting them. They were telling people they could buy 10 houses with no money down. So we rounded up some of their marketing materials and basically we're going to try to challenge the government's theory of the case and say that this is improper. However, of course, we won the second trial with Dawn Pacella's help, and we'll talk about her in a minute without documents to counter the bank testimony. You know, the banks didn't want to go to jail, and they were more than happy to come to court, J.P. Morgan and Citibank, and blame realtors or anybody but them. So they said, oh, we don't allow these loans. You can't buy houses with no money down. You're supposed to put a down payment. So without documents to, to really counter that, they were able to establish fraud, right? So at the first trial, the jurors thought, well, yeah, okay, they don't allow it, but these were made, so there must be fraud because they're saying they don't permit these type of loans. And we didn't have anything to truly counter that theory. And the FBI agent said that he went through thousands and thousands of files and that he felt there was wrongdoing. And so this was persuasive enough in federal court. I think a lot of the jurors trust the government or, or respected to have some extent. They thought, well, the judge wouldn't let this go on. There must be something here. There's foreclosures. This guy's involved. The bank says they don't do the loans. The FBI agent went through 50 billion pages. It must be true, essentially. Uh, and then the second trial was completely different because we had the documents, which, which we can talk about later. Um, but the answer is, it's an awful experience to be assaulted by your own government. I mean, United States of America versus Tony Viola is very scary. And, you know, you, the government is using its full power to crush me put me in jail, destroy everything I work for, destroy my reputation, destroy me financially so I can't fight 
I would never wish this on anybody. And the fact that the proceedings dragged out for years, you're supposed to be able to have your day in court. By the time we got to court, there was no winning. The company had already been destroyed. I was already, you know, exhausted from this long fight. And that's before the trial started. So the government has endless resources. They can add three lawyers to the case. They can drag it out. Uh, they, they benefit from their misconduct. The fact that they claim these computers had disappeared, ran up my legal bills. I have to go have an investigator and finding out what's going on. We had hearings. So the government benefited from their own misconduct by what we found out later. They destroyed computers um, and just dragged this case out so you can't fight. You basically have zero chance in federal court to fight the Justice Department. They have all the resources and the judges are very pro-prosecutor. Uh, even to the point of limiting what our defense could be. We were not allowed to say that the banks knew that the loans were, uh, you know, that they were reckless. Oh, no, you can't, you can't blame the victim. So in federal court, banks are treated like some innocent little old lady or something where, you know, oh, you can't say anything like that. It's called a motion in limine to limit our defense. So you can't really have a freewheeling trial and introduce evidence you want. So it's, it's, we have a Soviet Union-style justice system in our country, I have to say, which I was completely unaware of. Yeah, it's hard to look at this and not think that you were part of uh, an effort to make it look like some people who were the like someone went to jail right. for uh, the financial collapse. Right. Uh, I recall working at, at a small agency in New York. Uh, we did stuff for HSBC, and I had to build like fancy little presentations mm -hmm. that they would they mm -hmm. would give internally. And one of the things I remember having to build, but I didn't know what it was, was just was this little slider that went uh, up and down. And as you dragged the, it down on the, that slider was for the credit score, like right, someone's right. credit score, it would show the APR could right. go up. Right. And this was all a presentation on right. the subprime right. the, uh, loans. And the banks were like, this is good. We can do this. Right. This is great. Um, did you know of, um, like when you were arrested... Had you already had there been other raids of realtors? Had you heard this was happening, I mean, or were you maybe that were you the tip of the spear, the first one that you had heard of something like this happening? They had uh, investigated and arrested a couple of people, but the the activity they were accused of was pretty blatant, like manufacturing documents or manufacturing an appraisal for a house that doesn't exist and getting a loan. I mean, so I was like, well, that's not cool. So, I mean, I never in a million years thought that we would ever be raided or arrested. And remember now, I was indicted in federal and state courts simultaneously. This country has treated me like a mass murderer. Timothy McVeigh blew up the Oklahoma City bill. He was in, in charge in federal and state court. Okay, It's very rare to have a criminal defendant charged in both state and federal court at the same time by the same task force. This is not a case of, oh, the feds picked it up later or the state started it. This is a multi-jurisdictional task force. And the federal and state government cooperated through it. It's quite scary because they used this, this structure of this task force to shift evidence around. So, so what, the, what they did was a state detective named Arvin Klar, Klar would interview somebody first. And they would say, listen, Tony's a good guy. I've worked with him for 10 years. He's not a crook. We don't own it. He doesn't own a mortgage company. And he, Arvin would say, well, thank you. Um, we'll call you if we need you. And that was the end of that. If somebody came in and said, Tony's no good, or I don't like him, or he's a crook, or whatever, oh, thank you. 
go see Mark Bennett and Jeff Kasuf over in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So this task force was like a witness screening mechanism, and it was a way to shift evidence around back and forth. Even now, we're having to fight all these different constituent agencies of the task force. That's one of the big legal questions in my case about whether or not the federal government can set up and fund and participate in a task force. Do they then have to search it for evidence? They've said no. They've said anything there. That's, that's, we don't have to give you that. And so like the FBI agent listened to certain tapes, sent them to the task force, and he's saying, well, we don't have to give you that. So what the government is arguing is that they should be able to dispossess evidence that's inconvenient that they don't want to turn over because they don't want to lose the case. It's also illegal, but nobody seems to care yet. We'll see. I mean, but what's gone on with this task force is quite alarming to see the structure of this task force used for, you know, very questionable or illegal manipulation of evidence by shifting evidence back and forth. And the other thing, too, is the FBI agent, Kasuf, testified that when he needed something from a state or local official, no problem, he could get it. But we can't get it. When we ask the, the federal government for it, they say, oh, no, we, we don't have that. That's over at the other building. So as a private citizen, who has millions of dollars to go and investigate all these agencies? And, and you're supposed to get exculpatory evidence before trial. And so that's between this raid and this media circus and this structure of this task force. Uh, it was just set up for, for wrongdoing by the prosecutors. And I guess they say, well, if you're guilty, it doesn't matter. And they thought I was guilty because they say so. They're very arrogant. They're very self-righteous. And so I'm guilty. Not, you don't need a jury. to. T they know that because they're the feds and they know everything. And so there's a great institutional arrogance. Well, he must be guilty because we say he's guilty. And the lack of evidence proves our theory. So that's, that's the mindset inside those offices. So you were prosecuted on the federal level by Mark Bennett? Mark Bennett was the assistant U.S. attorney. He was the lead prosecutor. And then um, for state, they enlisted Dan Casares, right. who was Cuyahoga County prosecutor, now an assistant state attorney. Right, exactly. So, um, and they worked together because both were at both. Mark Bennett was at my state trial. Dan Casares was at the federal trial. They were both everywhere. But this fiction of state and federal existed. But this task force essentially had the same crew. I mean, the two trials were essentially identical. The same government witnesses, the same charges, the same counts, the same everything, really. Uh, and so, yes, but the fiction was, well, he's the federal guy and Dan's the state guy. So walk me through then. Um, so you've been, you, you're convicted in federal court. Right. And then um, in state, it gets tossed out. Yeah. So I, I was convicted on 59 counts and, and I'm, I'm not guilty on the same 59 counts a few months later. What happened was this. As this case was going on, my friends knew this was nonsense. They were like, Tony, this is terrible. Why, why, why is this happening? I'm like, I don't know. And so they decided to set up some fundraisers to help me with legal fees, partially to have a cocktail and some appetizers downtown at AJ Rocco's because our friend Brendan Walton's a great guy. He says, yeah, sure, you guys come by. And my friends set up these little fundraisers. My friend Dee Spinello and Tracy Watsarino, they said, oh, we'll round up some prizes and we'll, we'll support you, you know, and we'll have an appetizer and a beer or whatever. So one day, a lady named Dawn Pacella shows up, and she says, hey, I'm, uh, I'm studying criminal defense. I'm working with local defense lawyers. I'm kind of interested in your case. Would you be interested in sharing information? I've got some stuff that might help you. Maybe you can tell us how you're doing. And I said, absolutely. And Dawn was very bubbly, gorgeous, brilliant person. 
And so we went out and said, well, sure, let's go grab a drink together one night and we'll talk about it or we'll go have a coffee. And so we sort of became friends. Meanwhile, what I did not know is Dawn was actually Dan Caceres' administrative assistant and the office manager of the task force. And so Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres started getting worried. I refused to plead guilty. And I'm not saying I'm right, but I told the judges and the lawyers, I said, look it. I might go to jail for 500 years and die there. I'm not pleading guilty to go willingly for one hour. Again, I'm not saying I'm right. A lot of people think, dude, you should just, you can't win. I'm not doing it. I am not standing in front of different judges that said, yes, Your Honor, I organized a mortgage fraud scheme and stole $46 million and stole the money out of this family. I'm just not doing it. I had no criminal history. I, I thought I was running an honest business. We're not perfect. I'm sure we made piles of mistakes. But do, do I think we did anything illegal? No. And I'm not pleading guilty. I don't, I don't care. And the lawyers were, you know, the, the defense lawyers, I mean, Jay Milano has got to be one of the worst lawyers ever. I mean, they like the prosecutors. I mean, they really do. Because if I didn't get indicted, I wouldn't have been in his office with a big check. And he was, there was always some excuse why we can't fight. And I said, listen, this was a private attorney? Yeah. Okay. And so we, can, we don't want to upset them. I said, wait a minute. They're destroying everything I work for my entire life. They don't even know what businesses I own. If they would have called my office, I would have given them our records. We don't need SWAT teams and pontoon boats in the Cuyahoga River for raids. This is ridiculous. I'm not pleading guilty. And he kept telling me that I was upsetting them, that Mark Bennett was upset. He was insulted. I said, I, I cannot believe. These, these people owe me an apology. They should dismiss this case. This is ridiculous. So the lawyers don't really want to fight, but there's always some legalistic reason why we can't do it. But it's essentially, we're going to work really hard later, but not today, you know, not now. Anyway, Dawn was very, initially very helpful. She's given me stuff about these banks, have programs that are no money down loans, stuff we probably could have found on our own if we really looked, but she started helping me. Anyway, she worked for the prosecutors and was recording what I was saying so the government could obtain our trial strategy information. This is illegal, okay? The entire case should have been thrown out years ago just on this. I can't bug the U.S. Attorney's Office. Gee, I wonder what Mark Bennett's saying when witnesses come in. Or I wonder what Steve Dettelback is saying in, about these, right? It'd be if a very I, different justice system. Right, it was if just I bugged, no holds barred, espionage is allowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, for them. If I bugged, could you imagine if I bugged the U.S. Attorney's Office? Or if one of my friends worked there and I said, here, wear a wire and see what they're saying about the trial preparation. I mean, there would be sanctimonious, self-righteous pontification. I'm just interfering with the fair administration of justice. This defendant must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But they did it to me, and they've gotten away with it. So what happened was Dawn was not an undercover officer and did not want to do this, but was really pressed to do it. And we're talking about the case, and they liked listening to the tapes. It helped. It was helped. It damaged our defense initially. And then later she realizes that this is inappropriate, and one of her friends said, you, you can't do that. What are you talking about? Um, we found out that, that uh, Dan Caceres had asked an undercover officer to do it. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. That's illegal to record some dude who's preparing for trial after indictment. You can't do it. So anyway, they, they pressured Dawn into doing it. She did it. And she became very upset about what was going on. She was aware of the destruction of exculpatory evidence inside the prosecutor's office. And she started copying it. Before it went vamoose, she was taking cop- making copies of, of certain things. And she also blew the whistle on the Catherine Clover affair. So the prosecutor's having an affair 
with the lead witness against me in this case. Okay, so Dan Caceres having a romantic relationship with Catherine Clover. We've got hundreds of pages of emails between them that are unbelievable. Um, now, did you have? Did you know who Catherine Clover was before any of this? Yeah, Catherine Clover purchased rental properties. She owned properties before she came in contact with our company. She bought rental properties through our company and then bought rental properties outside of our company. Uh, and so she was a local real estate investor. So yeah, we knew who she was. And, you know, again, don't think there was anything wrong with her buying no money down properties. Later, when we actually looked at the loan documents, which nobody in the prosecutor's office ever bothered to do, it said she had no down payment. It said her income was zero or the bank didn't care about her income. It was waived as a condition. So the idea that we committed fraud together so she could own all these properties so I could make all this money was just proven false by just a quick review of the documents. But nobody ever does that, apparently, because I'm guilty because they say so. So we were able to determine later that the banks offered these loans and, and promoted the loans and that there was no fraud. I mean, that's the bottom line in the case. The banks weren't deceived. Maybe it's reckless to let someone buy 10 houses with no money down, but they were allowing it, so it's not a crime. And so we were being blamed for lax lending policies of banks that's not illegal. So unbeknownst to you, then, Catherine Clover is the one who set Casaris on you, right? What happened was this. This we found out later, so we'll yeah. just fast forward for your audience. So what happened... Yeah, we can just go into, like, what's actually happening. Yeah, right. Now, like, well, here's everything we thought was happening. Right. Now no. let's rewind and talk no, about no, everything right. that, let's that just actually see. happened. Let's right. just what happened it. was Catherine Clover bought a bunch of rental houses, couldn't rent one of them, and thought it would be a super good idea to burn one of them down. So she paid somebody to commit arson at a rental property and collected like a hundred grand of insurance money. The insurance company thought it was fishy and contacted the ATF and said, hey, this is fishy that this house magically burned down. We paid this claim. Will you look into it? And so the federal government was going to prosecute Catherine Clover for burning this house down until Dan Caceres thought she was hot and basically said, look, I could make this go away. You know, but you're going to have to help me with some of these bigger dogs in Cleveland. I mean, that's essentially what happened. Now, we didn't know that. Dan Caceres lied and said that... Um, uh, uh, so he was her prosecutor? He was her prosecutor. She becomes his paralegal. He sends her to law school, doesn't disclose this, ends up having a romantic relationship that lasted years. His wife's writing about it on Facebook. I mean, it's all over the internet. Everybody knows about it. He takes her to Indians games. Caceres is incredibly reckless. He doesn't take any steps to hide this. He goes out with her publicly. He goes to bars in Lakewood. There's no, uh, you know, keep this quiet stuff. I mean, he's gotten away with crazy stuff for 30 years. So, and Dawn notices, why is this girl in the office all the time? Who? I thought she was a witness. You know, witness should come to the prosecutor, a government witness should come to the prosecutor's office, what, three, five, ten times? Not every day. Apparently she had a desk. She's working in, on stuff. She's in sitting in on meetings with other government witnesses. She has access to all the evidence. In fact, she her lawyer, Jay Schlackett, admits that she destroyed evidence inside of the prosecutor's office. Not to hurt you, Tony, just to help herself. How on earth is a criminal defendant who's testifying in not just my case, but a dozen others, allowed to go through evidence together and then remove what's damaging to her, which probably was exculpatory to me, right? So about this arson. So so, so Casares creates this fictional story that an aggrieved borrower was at church and went up to Bill Mason after and said, Mr. Mason, could you look into this crooked Tony Viola guy? Uh, and so that's how what Casares told the media and the judges of how the case started. But really, 
it was Catherine Clover burning this house down and him saying, I'm going to rescue you. Caceres likes to use his authority to rescue young women in distress. He's got he, all kinds of crazy sexual escapades. The guy's the Harvey Weinstein of the Ohio Attorney General's office. Very public about his uh, affairs. He's been thrown out of his house by his wife, Susan, multiple times, g- gets an apartment in North Royalton, and then invites these girls there. So it's, it's crazy. But anyway, Dawn said, look, there's, there's something wrong because Catherine Clover is destroying evidence. She's in the office all the time. They're going out. They would leave together, come back together. Uh, and she's like, I'm telling you, they're leaving and having sex and coming back. And so, it, so initially I was like, oh, my God, this is, you know, I didn't know all this. Well, she didn't tell me until I lost the first trial but I wasn't sentenced and there was a second trial coming up. So I lose, but I'm still out on bond. That's when Dawn came forward and told me about that she was wearing a wire and that there was all this nonsense with evidence. Right before the first trial, the government finally flies this banker in, a guy named Steve Newcomb, and he starts going through these files and he says, listen, I don't want to testify against this guy because we kind of signed off on these loans. And Dan Caceres goes crazy and says, well, you can't, you can't say that in court. You know, and Mark Bennett, you know, you're, you're, you got to come in and play the role of the victim. So he's there all week inside the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office, and they create this cover story. Well, we'll lie and say that I didn't really look through the particular files, but I'll generally say you're supposed to put money down, but I'll plead ignorance to these specific things because this is really, these files are bad, meaning we signed off on them. There is no fraud. But that would destroy their case if the guy came in and said, yeah, we, we signed off on all this. There's no scam. So they didn't want him to say that. Dawn had confronted Caceres after that meeting because she was in there taking notes and running back and forth and getting files and stuff. And she said, well, you got to leave this guy alone. This is crazy. And uh, Caceres yelled at her and said, you, you, you know, you're a bit player. You're my secretary. You don't say stuff like that. Stay out of it. She gets super upset, leaves and, you know, got increasingly despondent by what was going on. Dawn was brilliant. She was idealistic about justice. She went to Cuyahoga Community College, started the criminal justice club there, okay? Was a real idealist about justice, wanted to do the right thing, thought that bad dudes need to be prosecuted, but that you should have a fair day in court. She was a true idealist. And it broke her heart to see that so many innocent people were being railroaded and that she was you know, a, a part of it in a small sense. And it, it was very hard. It crushed her spirit, really, because she was such a nice person and didn't want to hurt anybody. And then she felt like she was indirectly hurting people. And so it was hard for her. So I think she helped me to help me because I thought she thought it was the right thing to do. But I think she helped me for herself so she could just move on with her life and say, this is wrong and I don't want to cover it up or be a part of it. And she stepped forward after your first conviction. Right. Do you think she was hoping, well, maybe you'll get out of it and I don't have to, you know, like, or was that the thing, you know, that pushed her like, okay, I need to, I need to actually reach out to you and tell you what's going on. When she saw that it, it didn't work out and that justice wasn't served from her vantage. Right. She said, Tony, I wanted you to win the first trial more than you. You have no idea. It took her long. It was very hard for her to tell me all this. She felt very embarrassed and humiliated that she was wearing a wire. I mean, and I was like, Dawn, look, there's no, I mean, you were doing what your boss told you to do. I would have done the same thing, but she had guilt over it. It was very upsetting to her. She said, look, I'm the good person, and I hear I'm a criminal. It's illegal. She was very upset about what happened. But the answer is she said, in in the midst of tears, Tony, you can't win without me. And I don't want to be a whistleblower, and I don't want to come forward, but I have to. You can't win 
without me. You're going to go to jail for 15 federal years, and you're going to lose the second trial and go to jail for 25 more or whatever. And all these other people are going to be convicted on false testimony and false evidence. But if I come forward, you can win your second trial, and we can get all these cases reopened. So we made a deal. She's going to help me win, and I'm going to help her get all these cases reopened. And she also said, Tony, you can't use a lawyer. I said, what are you talking about? How am I going to go to trial? I'm a real estate sales guy. I can't do a trial. She's like, I'm going to help you. I made the government exhibits. She made the government's trial exhibits and my exhibits later at the second trial. I mean, it's, a, it's the craziest story what they did to her. And they've not been held responsible at all. Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres have gotten away with what they did to Dawn for a decade. Now, let's hope that's going to change. But it's awful what they did to her. But <clears throat> she said, you can't win without me. And I can't just forget about it. So I have to help you. I'm going to help you. We're going to prepare for trial. And she brought me evidence that she had been stashing. And we turned it into trial exhibits. And we had trial preparation. In fact, one of her ideas was we went to a, after trial preparation for like 10 hours. I'm like, listen, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Can we stop and get a slice of pizza or something? You know. And so she said, well, I have an idea, actually. And so we went to a bookstore. And we bought like 10 books on how to buy houses, no money down. And she said, this is for your opening statement. And you can throw it on the prosecutor's table. And she's going to arrest this guy. He wrote a book about no money down. Was this guy a criminal? This is ridiculous. This is just the way real estate was done. People were buying houses without a down payment. The government had no down payment loan programs. The paperwork we used was off the HUD website. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so she said, we'll make those into exhibits. And I did get her a snack. Also, but yeah, the answer is she felt that it was the right thing to do to come forward. I offered her money. She wouldn't take money. Uh, I, I was very worried about her and because she wasn't working for the prosecutor's office anymore. And uh, I was very concerned. And I said, listen, why don't you just, you know, take a few dollars, put it in your sock drawer. She's like, absolutely not. I'm fine. I'm not taking a cent. I'm not doing, I said, I know you're not doing it for money, but do it for me because I'm your friend and I'm just concerned about you that you've been very poorly treated by the government even though she worked for the prosecutor. Um, and she said, no, I, I don't want to, I can't. And I had to respect her, her wishes, but I wanted to be a better friend to her because she basically, well, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Without Dawn Pacella, I'd be in jail. I would not have won the second trial. So I'd be, I wouldn't have had any post-conviction ability to get released early, which happened. And I, wouldn't have, I would have no ability to really fight if I lost two trials, as opposed to losing and then winning one. That gave life to all of my subsequent claims. So um, she brings you evidence. She's working with you in the second trial. And then how did it come to, and you're representing yourself at this point? Yeah, she said, look it. She's like, look, forget lawyers and forget reasonable doubt. She's, you ever see law and order? Forget that. You, we can prove you're innocent. We're going to tell the jurors we are going to prove there is no mortgage fraud. She said, let's keep it simple. Okay, it doesn't matter who met with who and who showed what house to who and what Catherine Clover's, nothing matters if the bank was not tricked into making the loans. So she gave me the FBI report where the guy tell the, the bank tells the FBI our employees were authorized to make these loans. Well, there's no fraud if they signed off on it and said it was okay. We didn't hide anything. We wrote the paperwork as someone buying a house with no money down. So she said, we are going to prove innocence, first of all. And she said, second of all, we, I, we called her Document Dawn. She said, let me just tell you about documents. Forget Catherine Clover. She's having a sexual relationship with the prosecutor. She'll say anything. 
The bank doesn't want to go to jail. They'll say anything. It doesn't matter what they say. We have the document from the day the loan was approved. The document doesn't lie. The document is contemporaneous. This is five, six years later. Who remembers what somebody said? You remember what you had for breakfast five years ago today? Who remembers? She said, we don't need it. We have the documents. They don't lie. It's exactly contemporaneous. And the government can't argue or the bank can't argue about the authenticity. It's their own document. It's not Tony's document for my real estate company. It's the bank underwriter approving the no money down loan. So if they're approving it in writing before closing and telling the title company, collect zero money and give them a check, there's no scam. There's no fraud. If the income says zero, they're not misled because the income is inflated. It says zero. If the assets say zero, and they had these, it's called NINA, no income, no asset loans. We had the bank program statements of their different lending programs. They didn't give this to us for, Dawn had it. But they, oh, we don't have that. But she had it, so she gave me all this stuff. So when the bank lied again, this was a massacre because we could counteract that by saying, well, wait a minute now. Are you familiar with your lending program? Well, yes. Is this your lending document? Yes. Well, what does it say on page 86? Read that. It says you could buy a house, no money down, and get up to $25,000 cash back. Well, yeah, but we don't usually do that. eh, We didn't ask if you usually did it. I'm talking about this particular house. This count right here is five years in jail for me. So were you tricked or not? You want to just tell the jurors that you weren't tricked? And so he didn't want to do it, but we just ground it out. That's the other thing Dawn said. You win by grinding it out. Count one, throw that out. Count two, so the documents enabled us to show that there was no fraud. And nothing else really mattered at that point. In the first trial, the government could establish fraud. We don't allow the loans. We lost money. In the second trial, that, that, that wasn't possible. And so we sort of stopped the whole government ability to, to argue, well, first there's fraud, and then who did it? Oh, Tony did it. Okay, nothing mattered. It didn't matter what anyone, all these government witnesses said because there was no scam. There was no fraud. So she was brilliant. She knew how to prove innocence. She said, forget reasonable doubt. And she knew how to use the documents to make exhibits. And she knew how to uh, create questions that I could ask people. And she was going to testify at the second trial. And she had me, we practiced a little bit, and she wanted me to ask her very open-ended questions. Questions like, what was your role at the task force? Or... Very open-ended, so she could talk and explain what she saw and what she felt. Um, Or open-ended questions like, what were your concerns about evidence at the task force? Or what happened to the computers that the government claims were lost? So she wanted me to ask very open-ended questions after we, you know, said, tell us about yourself. And she introduced herself to the jury. So I know she planned on testifying. She was added to our witness list. She helped me prepare for the trial. And the government didn't know she was helping me until the trial was underway. And then I kept having documents that Dan Caceres stood up and told Judge Daniel Gall, there is no FBI interview with the bank. And I had the FBI interview with the bank. Then Dan Caceres said, there is no bank program guidelines that allows no money down loans. But we had the bank program guidelines that they allow no money down loans. So he was proven to be a liar in front of the judge and the jury. And so people didn't believe him at all uh, because we kept having documents. And by the way, I was in jail during the second trial. I'm in jail and I have documents. I have government documents. So we destroyed the government's case with the government's own documents at the second trial. So did they not know Dawn was helping you until you had to put her on the witness list? Correct. She told me, do not say anything. So you kept that in your pocket to the last possible second? She said, you can give a preliminary witness list and then a final witness list. What do I know? I'm a real estate guy. Dawn was brilliant. She knew all this criminal justice stuff. She knew how to prepare for trial. This is what she did. 
You know, when you would see the U.S. attorney or these prosecutors with these whiteboards behind them with all these graphs and charts, she would make those. I mean, so she knew how the mechanics of all this worked. You know, she showed up at my house with defense exhibit stickers. I'm like, this is hilarious. I don't know how to, I don't even know where to buy it, where you'd get these, right? So she knew how to do the mechanics of a trial. She knew how you establish that you're innocent. She knew how to use the documents. She knew how to use the questions. They had no idea until I kept showing up with documents that they didn't have. They suspected her. I heard uh, Dan Caceres and this Nick Geigerich in the back thing that, girl must be helped, you know, like something. I heard that, but I don't think they knew for sure until the second and final witness list. And when her name was on it, all hell broke loose. Do you want me to tell you what happened? Should I just continue? So when the government realized that Dawn Pacella, their own office manager, was willing to come in, Mark Bennett and Dan Casares went crazy because Dawn was aware of criminal activity by prosecutors, destruction of evidence, hiding of evidence, manufacturing of evidence, destroying these computers, forging her name on the evidence log, the romantic relationship between Catherine Clover, the fact that the government knew Catherine Clover lied at the first trial and refused to recant it. You know, I'm not supposed to have to do any legal work. Mark Bennett put in writing that Catherine Clover committed perjury at my trial. The government is supposed to throw the conviction out. I'm not supposed to go through all this 12 years of hell on earth and be in jail and all this. They knew she was lying during the trial, according to their written documents. So I think they realized that if this uh, person comes in and testifies about misconduct, all hell's going to break loose and all these cases would be reopened. Catherine Clover touched all the cases. She's in meetings with banks. You could tie her to every one of these mortgage fraud cases. There's over a thousand. So the stakes were pretty high. They threatened her. They went to her apartment. They said, you better leave town. You better not come to court. They went to her parents' house. Ed, did you hear about this from Dawn? Dawn called me. The last conversation I had with her, she called Judge Gall and said, look, I'm, I'm getting threatened. Judge Gall said, you must come in. You've been served with a subpoena, and you have important personal knowledge. What were the threats? The threats were to put her in jail, to prosecute Dawn. They basically told her, you weren't authorized to give this guy these records. You stole evidence out of the prosecutor's office. You have these confidentiality obligations. You can't be talking to a criminal defendant. Well, the reason, well, how did Dawn know me in the first place? Because Dean Caceres and Mark Bennett wired her up and said, figure out this guy's trial preparation. He doesn't really own these mortgage companies. We might lose this case, God forbid. So we're going to break the law. I mean, so they, the reason she knew me in the first place and was coming to our social events and meeting my friends and having cocktails with us is because they sent her to do it. And now they're saying, you can't be talking to Tony Viola. And so they, they threatened her. And she, it was just too much. I mean, she was a, such a kind person. You know, she would rescue animals. She worked at the Parma Animal Shelter. She volunteered to help senior citizens pay their utility bills. I mean, Dawn was a very kind person and she never wanted to hurt anybody and it was just very hard for her to think that she was in this mess how she got sucked into this whole thing so she wanted to testify to be honest and go to court and she's like i don't want to talk to lawyers i don't want to talk to reporters i just want to go to court i want to bring other documents that i have and i and i think judge gall is fair and i think i'll have a chance to testify i just want to tell what happened R related to your case tony because it, it i should be able to go and she had personal knowledge of the case and she knew me and I knew her because of, the, of this illegal spying operation. So she's threatened. Um, she moves out of her apartment. She parks her car in her parents' garage and the garage is closed so that, so that, so that Arvin Klar and Dan Casares and FBI agent Kasuf can't find her. They're trying to find her and arrest her or prosecute her. And 
it was just overwhelming for her. So she, but, but in our last conversation, she's like, Tony, they know I'm helping you. I have to come in because even if you win the trial, if I don't come in, they'll chase me for, for the rest of my life. I have to come in. So I'm coming in. I will see you. And I was like, are you sure? Because I'm like, Dawn, look, you, I, I'm, I know I won this trial. Maybe I should just take you off the witness list. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And she's like, no, no, I, I got to come in because they already know that I gave you the stuff. They already know all this. I have to come in. I'm coming to testify. And she said, are, are you going to screw this up? And I'm like, no, you gave me the questions. I think, and you just said, you know, she used to say, don't ask me what time it is. Cause that's like, no, it's three 30. Give me open-ended questions. You know? And I said, I know what you want. You want open-ended questions. She's like, yeah, just open-ended questions so I can say what I want to oh, say yeah. right to the jurors and to, and to judge gall. So I said, okay. Cause she was the smarty pants genius. And I said, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing here. You, I would have never won without her. She helped me so much. So I said, if you think it's best come in and then, that morning, she was supposed to come in, and she didn't. And Judge Gall said, do you know what she looks like? And I said, yes, Your Honor. And he said, well, go outside. And, and you know, of course, the deputy went with me to see if she's out there. No. So the judge said, well, we'll have, I'm going to tell the jurors I have other stuff. We'll come back at one. If she's not here, you know, we're, we're going to go to closing arguments. I can't wait forever, but I'll give her to one. So I thought, well, maybe she changed her mind. Maybe she thought it wasn't a good idea to come in. I wasn't sure. But she was uh, risking serious repercussions for, um, was there a subpoena for her? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Judge Gall said, you have to come in. You've been subpoenaed. Yeah. You've been she added was- to the list. And, I'm, and, and the judge, I'm sure he thought I was guilty. I was just convicted in federal court. So I'm sure the judge thought, this guy's kind of a smart ass, right? He wants to have another trial. I just lost a trial. So he told me before the trial, you better have a defense. Because if you're wasting, because the trial was two months. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. Two two-month trials. A complete assault by the gov- by the United States and the state of Ohio. I would never wish this on anybody. So he said, "Look, you're going to waste a lot of time if this is if you don't have a viable defense, and I'm going to give you a long sentence if you're guilty. Now, if you have a defense, that's different. I presume you're innocent. I don't care about the other conviction, but as a practical matter, I said, Your Honor, I'm innocent. I'm going to prove it." He said, "What do you need?" I said, "I need five legal pads, and I need subpoenas served for my witnesses, and a couple of pens." And I need an order from you that lets me go to the jail law library to prepare. And I'm good to go. And my friend, John Caputo, he'd gone to my house because Dawn had prepared all these, had these stack of folders, all these exhibits and all this. And they went and grabbed them for me and brought them to the county jail. So anyway, when she didn't show up, I was like, oh my gosh. Well, I just assumed she decided not to because I figured, well, because I told her, I'm like, if something changes, you know, you're, you're brilliant genius if you think it's better not to so I just thought well maybe she decided not to but I didn't know and then we did closing statements and then the jury got the case and the next morning uh I was in a holding cell waiting to see if there was jury questions and I heard the the keys jingle for the officer who was walking down and I said I wonder if he's coming to get me probably not because it just started and then I heard the you know he put the key in the cell and so I jumped up and I went like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I went like this because you have to be cuffed to go to court. And the guy was white as a ghost. And I said, are you okay? And he said, forget the cuffs. Well, he said something else, but I won't say it on the thing. I said, okay. So I was like, did I win? Did I lose? Like he was upset. He said, don't say anything. And so I was taken back into the courtroom and Judge Gall was visibly upset. And the court reporter 
was, looked like she was in tears. I was like, what is going on? So Judge Gall put on the record that Dawn was found dead in her apartment by her, by her family. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't even, I couldn't even believe it. I, I still can't believe it. Um, and the thing is, jail's awful. And it's so, jail never changes. You know, my father passed away when I was in jail. My best friend um, passed away when I was in jail. And the jail's the same. It's the same on Christmas. It's the same on New Year's. It's just the same. There's bars and bad food and a lot of yelling and fighting. And it's the same. So it's so surreal to have a tragedy and you're in jail. So I can't really even explain how awful it was. Um, and the thing is, I didn't know that Dawn's folks, I, I didn't know what they knew, but, you know, a Catholic priest in, in the jail said, Tony, you've got to give them time and pray for them, but you've got to reach out to them because they need to know this is their daughter and maybe they don't know who you are and maybe they want to know. How was she found dead? How was she found dead? What was the circumstances of her death? Mr. Pacella went to check on her because he hadn't heard from her. He, could, he knocked on the door, couldn't get in. The police came. She was found dead of an alcohol overdose. Um, and so there was never any real inquiry into her death, supposedly alcohol, uh, very large alcohol consumption. I, 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 I believe I, it doesn't matter exactly what happened because she struggled with all this nonsense that, the, that they put her into this wearing a wire thing. The bottom line is, Dan Caceres and Mark Bennett are responsible for Dawn Pacella's death. They never should have had her wearing a wire and putting her into the middle of this case, ever. I don't care what. This is someone's daughter. This is a colleague in the prosecutor's office to treat somebody. I never asked the ladies in my office to get me a cup of coffee, ever. I would never. These people did this awful, put this young lady who's their rising star, who's brilliant, who works so hard, such a terrific person, and I mean, my friends adored her when she would show up and at these happy hours. I mean, it was supposed to be a happy hour for me, but everyone, where's Dawn? Is Dawn coming? You know, I mean, she was really nice and, and fun to spend time with and just brilliant. I mean, she's just, just brilliant. These fancy lawyers didn't know how to defend the case. She did. So it was, it was awful. So later I decided to gather all the documents because we had text messages and pictures and all this together. So I sent it all to her folks and I, I wrote them a letter saying how sorry I was and I've could never, I mean, I would have, and I said it, and it's true, I would plead guilty and rather be in jail the rest of my life than have anything bad happen to Dawn. And I, I said it to them then, and it's how I feel, like it's the most awful thing, uh, that if I didn't push it and have her come in, and she wanted to help, but I should have said no, or I, I just didn't know who to ask or what to do, and, and so as a result, my, my beautiful friend, who everyone adored, um, is not with us anymore. It's very, very difficult. And I'm sure it's awful on her family, much worse than for me. But this is terrible. And to have no investigation, no, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody from the government, and I think I said this at the last oral argument, nobody, at, like Dave Yost's office, Dawn worked for the Ohio Attorney General and was assigned by them to this task force because she was very good with evidence and computers and all that. And she was super talented. They sent her there to help set this whole thing up. Nobody expresses the slightest bit of concern uh, for her family, for what happened. Nobody. Don Nugent, the federal judge in my case, he refused to give me an evidentiary hearing. Later, Don's family came forward and gave sworn statements about what happened to their daughter. What does Mark Bennett do? He files a motion to knock the affidavits off the, off the uh, court uh, docket, said it's inflammatory. It's inflammatory, all right, because Mark Bennett broke the law. 
and violated law. So the fact that this this young lady was found dead, the government did improper and illegal things to her, and nobody's been held responsible, to me, is, is the single most outrageous part of the case. And then this affair with Catherine Clover, everybody knows about it. Mark Bennett's copied on some of these Clover emails. I mean, everybody knows about it. Defense lawyers know about it. They were seen about town. It's no big deal to these people, except that she testified falsely in a dozen criminal proceedings, and all these people went to jail based on her false testimony. But nobody has a problem with it. And you heard Yost's office, oh, well, you know, he didn't work here. Dan Caceres didn't work here when that happened. This is ridiculous. This is law enforcement. It's supposed to be enforcing the law. You could start by doing it in your own office. And the government's supposed to withdraw false testimony. They knew she committed perjury. It's on PACER. It's in her sentencing memorandum. So what? It, so not only did they not withdraw the testimony, but they keep using her. So uh, this is, it's not just me, what they did, they did. Oh, they ruined Tony's company or whatever. This is just what we do in our country. This is what we do. We have win at all costs style of litigation. There was nothing that Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres weren't willing to do to, quote, win this case. But this is... Can you imagine if I intimidated a government witness? Imagine if I went to a government witness's apartment or home and said, you better not come to court tomorrow. I know you're subpoenaed to come to court, but you better not come to court. You better leave town, okay? The government would would do what? Charge me with intimidating witnesses, witness intimidation, obstruction of justice, tampering with witnesses, right? But they do it all the time. So we have a terrible problem in our country of the government destroying people's lives and destroying the country as a result of this complete nonsense over mortgages, which I didn't have anything to do with. So there's really nothing that they wouldn't do. And what happened at dawn is just awful. And it's, it's, it's unacceptable. And so, you know, she said, Tony, I'm going to help you win and we'll get all the cases tossed. And so even though she would know how to do it and I don't really know what I'm doing, we're still trying to honor her wishes. And we're saying all these cases need to be reopened. What went on is wrong. Evidence was tampered with, destroyed, manipulated, false evidence. These banks are in victims. By the way, the Cuyahoga County prosecutor has collected over $20 million of restitution from these cases. And as far as we can tell, never sent one penny to the banks. They're using it to buy laptop computers, police cars. Dan Caceres got a check from the restitution fund. So, I mean, this, this is the total nonsense that's gone on in these cases. Now, have you been in touch with any of the other uh, people who were swept up in this task force yes. that, that Clover's yes. testified against? Did, yes. I mean, um, yes. To, from what you've seen, were they all as equally blindsided? Um, and, and, and I mean, I know you can't speak to the details of other people's cases, but how much similarity are you seeing with who, who Caceres and Clover targeted in this task force? Yeah, I mean, I think what you have is this theory that the bank is an innocent victim, okay? So if the bank is an innocent victim and, there's, and, and they were duped into making loans, everybody becomes a criminal. The realtor's a criminal, the loan officer's a criminal, the title company's a criminal, the buyer's a criminal. It's, it's a big conspiracy, right? So the conspiracy laws are very lax. They're very broad, I guess, right? So you can, it's easy to be a conspirator. Oh, did you drive to the guy's house and sign him up as the closing agent and make $100? Well, you're in this conspiracy because without you, there wouldn't, the deal wouldn't have closed. So the government then has this ability to take 40 people and say they're all criminals and then pick who they want. Mm, I think we'll target the realtor. We don't like Tony Viola. He's not, or we'll target the loan officer. Or we'll target the title company. And we'll say, look, but for this guy, these deals wouldn't have closed. So we're going to prosecute them. So that's what they did. It's a one-size-fits-all uh, template where the bank's an innocent victim. Everybody else is a criminal. So 
I mean, do I think the realtors that are charged in these mortgage fraud cases, do I think they're innocent? Yeah, I do. Uh, George Gardner was charged with me. I never met him in my life except outside of court, but I'm supposedly in a conspiracy with him. He sold houses no money down. The contract said there was no money down. There's no effort to hide. The bank's allowed to say no. You know, the government acts like J.P. Morgan can't say no. I mean, they approved all these loans. I didn't fly to their origination center or their underwriting office and make them approve loans. But, you know, they're innocent victims, according to the government. So the answer is, I think most people are innocent. If someone made up documents or forged appraisers or something like that, or there wasn't a house that existed and they refinanced it, yeah, that's fraud. I mean, I'm not saying there's never any fraud anywhere. But I would say most of these mortgage fraud cases are complete rubbish. The bank is not an innocent victim. By the way, just to go into the mortgage part of it, the Justice Department knows this because they went and had these multi-billion dollar settlements with the bank. So J.P. Morgan, I owe J.P. Morgan millions of dollars of restitution because I duped them into making loans. But on the same transactions, they're a criminal, J.P. Morgan, and they reached a $13 billion settlement with the Justice Department. It's on DOJ.gov. The houses and transactions listed are this, include mine. So J.P. Morgan is an innocent victim of me, but they're a criminal. They defrauded the people who bought the loans on Wall Street because they knowingly violated their underwriting guidelines by approving no money down loans. So if you take what the government said in my case and what, what they argued and what they argued in the J.P. Morgan settlement, they're the complete opposite. So in my case, they don't allow no money down loans. They knowingly made no money down loans. They don't allow uh, someone who's not a licensed appraiser to do an appraisal. No, they admit it using non-licensed appraisers. You could, you know, you could take the whole testimony and compare it. It's, it's opposite. So we have win at all costs litigation and zero in our country, zero willingness to follow any of the rules of withdrawing false testimony or vacating convictions that are proven later to be false. So the bank cannot be an innocent victim and a criminal on the same transaction. It's not possible under the law to be an innocent victim duped, entitled to restitution, but also a perpetrator of fraud who has to pay all these billions of dollars to people who bought the loans. But the government is doing that. They play a double game with banks, hoping that people won't know or someone like me will get discouraged or get tired of it or give up. I mean, that's what they hope. And so what we're doing now is important to shine a spotlight on what is going on? But there is, they're supposed to. It's called candor towards a tribunal. The prosecutors are supposed to withdraw testimony, which would vacate the conviction. They're supposed to withdraw J.P. Morgan's false testimony in my trial because they subsequently learned that, in fact, the bank knowingly made all these loans. But we don't want to do that in America because we don't want to disturb convictions because we want people to be afraid of the government so they plead guilty. And you can't win. Look at this Tony guy. You can't win. You want to spend 15 or 20 years fighting or you just want to plead guilty and go to jail for four years and work out and buy honey buns on the, on the jail commissary and it'll all be good. It's no big deal. You just go to jail for a little bit and we're fine. Our country's a plea agreement factory and, they, and the government wants it that way. They want it. It's nice and easy. Prosecutors don't have to work. You don't have to prepare for trial. You just plead guilty and, and you give up all your rights. Can't if you plead guilty, you can't later. Oh no, I'm innocent. Well, you, why'd you plead guilty? You know, so there's a big push to push people to plead guilty and zero ability to correct injustice in our case. The, the justice system has nothing to do with justice. Nothing. It has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. Nothing. It has nothing to do with the law. It's there to protect itself. Judge Donald Nugent is the quintessential example. He wrote an opinion that said I was not allowed, quote, not allowed to use different evidence at the second trial. Where is that from? Well, it's embarrassing to them that I won a second trial, right? But I'm not allowed. 
I mean, that's ridiculous. What do you mean I'm not allowed? He should be alarmed. My God, Don Pacella's dead. He should be alarmed. What? Catherine Clover was having a romantic relationship with the prosecutor and was working inside the prosecutor's office as a paralegal, not a fact witness. He should be raising holy hell. He should call the prosecutors on the carpet and say, you've disgraced my courtroom. You've insulted the jurors. You presented this witness as a fact witness. She's just going to come in and tell what she knows. She's going to testify honestly, take an oath, and tell the jury what she knows. That's not true. It's a fraud. Mark Bennett perpetrated a fraud on the court by falsely presenting this as a fact witness. I'm glad Dan Caceres fell in love with her. Get off the case. It's a conflict of interest, right? So, but they don't do so, so Nugent is the one who should be more outraged than anybody else. But what does he do? He's covering for these prosecutors. So our country's got big problems when the, when the, when the judge, who's supposed to be fair and enforcing the law, is really, basically, he should go work in the prosecutor's office. Or sit on the same, he could be the judge, and just sit next to the prosecutor. Because even when I proved my innocence at a second trial, I still sat in jail for 10 years during post-conviction wrangling. It's, it's crazy. I couldn't even believe it. Everybody said, when I won the second trial, like, look, we're planning a party. You know, we're going to get a sheet of pizza. We're going to have a black, you know. And, you know, I'm like, well, we don't order the pizza yet because I got to get out. I asked for a bond. Denied. I asked for a hearing. Denied. It's still, I can't get an evidentiary hearing in federal court to present the same proof of my innocence that I used at the second trial. What's the reason for denying it? Because it doesn't matter what happened in the state court. That's what Don Nugent said. Nothing matters, and it and wasn't allowed to use different evidence. That's the ruling right now at the moment. Yeah. And so what are your, what current, uh, what's your current legal strategy right now going through the, the Ohio Court of Claims? Well, the problem is that this task force with these 15, uh, I think there's actually 17 government agencies, to get evidence in my case that should have been produced before trial, I, there's no one place to go to. I've got to go to all the different constituent agencies of the task force. The federal government has said, yes, we, we have a grant to fund the task force, and yes, we staffed it, and they issued press releases. They're very excited to be a part of it. The FBI and the postal inspectors and the HUD inspector general, they're very excited to be part of the task, but not now because they say, well, we're not searching that location. It's not a federal agency, so we don't have to search it for evidence. And that so far has been upheld, although I do think that the Court of Appeals issued a preliminary ruling to question that in the, in the Third Circuit, but we have, we're still engaged in legal wrangling now. And the government admitted lying about evidence in my case, incidentally. The FBI claimed that they did not know about 10,000 FBI records in my own case until a year ago. So this is just complete, it's a cover-up. I mean, so they're claiming that they just found out now that there's all these new records. But, but aside from the, the legal wrangling, the federal government won't search the task force. So I have to go to all the different agencies of the task force. For instance, we've never received the tapes that Dawn made. Dawn was with me on multiple occasions. She thinks there's about a half dozen voice recordings after my indictment talking where I'm, we're talking about my court case. She came to my real estate company's office once to help me assemble discovery. I got all this discovery. I said, Dawn, I have no idea what to do. She's like, oh, you got to go count by count and organize it. I was like, listen, I'll give you some money. Do you want to help me? And so she, this is before I knew. So, she, so she's involved with our legal defense as a member of the prosecutor's office, right? So I've been trying to get the tapes. The FBI listened to the tapes, Jeff Kasuf, Agent Kasuf, but he doesn't have them anymore because he sent them to the task force. So nobody knows where I can go to get the tapes that Dawn made. This is a criminal act. It's called intrusion into the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Once you're indicted, 
you have the right to prepare for trial. If the government wants to meet with me, they have to say, call my lawyer and say, we'd like to have you come down to the prosecutor. But remember, Dan Cassera says, oh no, we don't meet with targets. So they don't want to meet with me because I'm a target, right? But they want to have Dawn wear a wire to interview, essentially interview me to find out what's going on with our trial preparation. Completely illegal. So the, nobody knows where these tapes are, right? The FBI had them, but they want to argue that they can dispossess evidence. Now, it's not legal for them to, quote, dispossess evidence, but they've gotten away with it so far. I mean, I don't think their cover-up will hold, but it's, it's, you know, the U.S. attorney here is really working hard to cover this up. I mean, they were spending a lot of resources to fight me at every turn. They're protecting Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres. So our legal strategy is to get enough documents to make a filing to throw the entire case out, the federal conviction out. That's what we're doing. So why, people say, well, why are, you, why are you in all these different courts? It's not because I like paying, paying uh, court fi- Well, I love paying that $275 filing fee. That was a blast. You know? Or I don't have anything to do all day, so I really want to file 15 lawsuits. No, I, I don't. But I have to go after these different constituent agencies. So Caceres used to be employed by the county prosecutor. So I have to go to them to see what they have. I have to Now he's working at the Ohio Attorney General. The task force was set up by the Ohio Attorney General, but it includes all these different federal agencies. So the HUD Inspector General says, well, we don't have FBI documents. Go call them. So we have to go to all of these different departments. There's local, the Solon Police Department was in the task force. So I had to go to those people. So we've had to go to all Pepper Pike Police Department. Um, I mean, I, I mean, the number of, of of state and federal and local agencies that were involved in this. And so Dan Caceres would, you know, have the state detectives interview somebody. We get interviews. That got some witnesses went to the, uh, you know, Beachwood Police Department. You know, so we've got all this evidence all over the place. It's for the purposes of misconduct. There's no legitimate reason to have all this evidence all over the place. But it's, it's, to, it's to make it impossible to fight and impossible to get. It's also for the buck passing, you know, so that that uh, attorney general, you know, Yost's uh, uh, underling, Ann Yakshaw, could stand up in front of a three-judge panel of the Ohio Court of Appeals and say, uh, Your Honors, you know, we don't have these emails, these romantic emails between Mr. Casares and Catherine Clover. We, we don't have them. We looked in our office and we don't have them. I mean, they're on his Yahoo account, but they don't want to search that account. So they're able to sort of plausibly deny or put their head in the sand and claim that they don't really know what's going on. I mean, they're not used to someone like me fighting them so hard. You can just tell that, um, you know, they're not used to it. You know, they, this is, they usually, people just give up and don't spend this kind of money. Now, I was in jail for a decade, so there's not much else to do there. I'm blessed. I have a great private investigator, a guy named Bob Frederick, and I have great friends who help me uh, and we're willing to do stuff. So we were making records requests. We're getting information. I mean, a normal person has a family or has a job or has a life or wants to go out or go to the baseball game. I didn't. So I did records requests. I mean, it was Christmas or New Year's. Well, there's nothing to do. So I think we'll go to the law library and see what I can find. So part of what we've unearthed um, is just because there was nothing else to do in jail for 10 years. And so I would buy an IBM typing cartridge, $7, and just type away and make these records requests. And I have friends to help me. The other thing, too, by the way, anyone fighting, you got to do a website because this freetonyviola.com, you know, the, the prosecutors and the FBI agents are not on social media. And if you Google them, a lot doesn't come up. So you start blasting away at Mark Bennett and say, Mark Bennett is using perjured testimony. Uh, when you Google Mark Bennett, you go right to our website. You Google Dan Caceres, you go right to our website. And so it's helpful because other people found me and we've shared information. So your original question was, 
about these. Are we in touch with other people? Yeah. And if I win, I think the floodgates will open and we will see a lot of people uh, moving to have their cases vacated. Remember, the evidence that Dawn gave me is not specific to me. It's not Tony. It's not like a DNA case where, oh, well, Tony didn't, that's not his DNA on that girl or whatever. Okay. It's not that at all. If the bank was not a victim, everybody's innocent, basically, right? So that, so, and she was very clear on this. This is not Tony specific evidence. This is evidence that destroys the government's theory and proves the banks knowingly and enthusiastically made these these loans. By the way, I didn't steal $46 million. Incidentally, at the second trial, you know, I subpoenaed the the, uh, the federal probation officer. I said, why don't you, you know, they're supposed to do an investigation into your finances. Where is this $46 million? It's the nation's largest mortgage fraud case. She refused to appear. You know, she basically essentially took a Fifth Amendment type privilege that I'm not going to come in. And so did the FBI agent. He was not willing to testify either. And that was a big turning point in that second trial because I think the jurors are like, what, what's the FBI afraid of? They're not going to come in. I'm supposed to take two months off of my job to listen to this. And, but he's not willing to come in. So that was a real mess for them. So we have to hope that the results of that trial, plus the recent admissions that the FBI doesn't know about their own records, uh, and the Justice Department said they made false statements. So hopefully this is enough. And some of the other evidence that we have about this romantic relationship with Clover and Caceres to, to, to vacate the initial conviction. We haven't done it yet because there's ongoing proceedings and we may get additional documents. And you only got one shot, basically, to vacate the conviction. So we want to go in with, you know, with all of our evidence at the ready. So no one has to take our word for it. Back to what Dawn said, the documents don't lie. Give them documents. So if we allege something, we want to attach preferably government documents to prove what we're saying. Um, well, Tony, uh, is there anything that people who are <laughs> justifiably pissed off about this, uh, that you, you would like to see, you know, more people doing, um, that, that has opened your eyes, like, well, more people need to be aware of who the prosecutors are and right. what they're getting up to, right. um, and, right. anything, you know, people could do to help your case. Well, first of all, I have to make an apology because, before this happened to me, I have to be honest, I was complacent. I wasn't worried about justice. I just had to be honest. I, I, I didn't think about it. Uh, I didn't participate. So to anyone watching who's concerned about this, who has, this hasn't happened to them, you're a better person than I am, okay? Because I didn't do anything. I had a business. I was making money. I could have been actively involved in stopping mass incarceration or fighting for justice. And I, I must say, I did, I did nothing. So to an extent, my complacency is, is, is one of the reasons this goes on. The, the, the government counts on complacency in the face of injustice, right? So on one hand, I have to apologize. Uh, on the other hand, we're trying to throw all, we're going big here. We're trying to throw all these cases out, okay? Sure. Would I like my case? Sure, of course. Would I like a day of personal vindication? Sure, it'd be great. But what we really want is for Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres to go to jail. We have a petition on change.org, and almost 4,000 people have signed it. These people violated the law. In fact, they violated the law today because they haven't withdrawn false testimony. All of these government lawyers that are fighting me in my case, including the U.S. attorney, all of these people are violating the law today. They did yesterday, the day before, they'll probably do it tomorrow. They're supposed to withdraw false testimony. The prosecutor had a sexual relationship with the witness in my case and a dozen other cases. This is ridiculous. It's completely illegal. So the answer is 
We want to stop this. Not I mean, what they did to me, they did. They ruined my business, and we can't undo it. But we can stop this from happening to anybody else. So how do we do it? We've got to get accountability. First of all, Dave Yost should fire Dan Caceres immediately. I mean, the fact that he even ha- is working is ridiculous. Um, and, and, and Mark Bennett, who was fired from the U.S. Attorney's Office, maybe because of my case, we're trying to get the documents and figure it out. Um, he, these, these prosecutors need to be disbarred, indicted, and imprisoned. They have engaged in criminal activity, in illegal, win-at-all-cost litigation. So sign the change.org petition, vote for political candidates who will drive change, take the immunity away from these characters that break the law. It's ridiculous. Um, But I'm hoping that, I'm not objective here, but I'm hoping because we're also fighting for Dawn, and because I have such proof of criminal activity inside the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Cleveland, I'm hoping that my case will help lead the way for others. Because Dawn helped me, and so she cleaned out the prosecutor's office with all these documents. I have stuff. They've lied for years. They said that the task force didn't receive federal funding. We got the federal grant documents. So we have tremendous proof of criminal activity by prosecutors. So I'm hoping that my case gains traction because we have more than most people. I sat in jail. I worked in the jail law library to help other inmates. Very few people have what I have, two trials, proof of innocence, proof of perjured testimony, documents that the government knew their witness lied and used it anyway, $20 million of restitution that has not been sent to victims. We have a lot of documents. And so I'm hoping that my case can be a a tip of the spear. But make no mistake, we want every mortgage fraud case uh, prosecuted by this task force to go or at least be reopened. Every case that Catherine Clover was involved with to be dismissed and Mark Bennett and Dan Caceres to go to jail. If we can get, it's no small trick, to get an assistant United States attorney indicted. But let's just think big. Let's say we can do it. That will send a message to these prosecutors everywhere. You want to prosecute people? Sure. But you know what? If you're wrong, you got to admit you're wrong. If you find exculpatory evidence during the course of an investigation, you have to produce it to the defense, not hide it, not destroy it. If your theory of the case is wrong, you don't wire up your office manager and say, go hang out with this guy and tell us what he's saying and record what he's saying about his trial preparation. So this win-at-all-costs, illegal prosecution has to stop in this country. The government's destroying the country. It's destroying our own people. We're nicer to the Taliban than we are to our own citizens. This is crazy what's going on. So I'm hoping that our petition gains traction and that the evidence that we've amassed, which is not Tony-specific, can throw all these cases out, maybe all across the country. I don't know. But let me just tell you, J.P. Morgan was not an innocent victim of realtors selling houses. And so these cases across America have this nonsensical theory that the government knows is wrong because they ended up reaching a, a settlement with J.P. Morgan and all these banks, Citibank, all this. So we hopefully can restore some sense of justice by holding these prosecutors accountable, particularly for what they did to Dawn. You know, last thought is uh, I was in jail and it was awful. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But my friends used to say, you know, Tony, we it sucks, but we'll see you one day. You know, one day... You'll get out, we'll come by, we'll order pizza, you know, we'll hang out, whatever. We'll see you again one day. But Dawn's folks, they, w- they won't have a chance to spend time with Dawn. You know, we'll never have a chance to spend time with her. And so our fight is also a way of honoring her memory, of honoring her commitment to justice, and to saying that what the government, what Caceres and Bennett did to this brilliant young lady is absolutely awful. And anytime I get discouraged... Or anytime I say, you know, I'm kind of tired of this, or maybe I 
yeah. it's a lot to to do this. I just I just say no. Just think of what Dawn's family is experiencing, or think about how they crushed her spirit and what they did to that my brilliant friend. And I said, I said we're just going to keep rolling along. So we're we're do, it's, it's a cause bigger than ourselves. Okay, it's not about a selfish thing. Oh, I hope I get vindicated and we'll have a big party. No, that's not what we're here. This is a true crusade for justice. And so we welcome ideas, support, signing the petition, suggestions. And then of course, anything we have is open to anybody. If any documents or information we have um, would help any other person have their case reopened, it's available. My investigator and I will give you everything. Happy to do it and hope that what we have acquired is helpful to others.